Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Matt Adams Podcast, coming to you live from the southeast side of Indianapolis, Indiana, where we had snow, then 60 degree weather, then flooding, flash flooding, and then snow again. It's been a great start to spring, everybody. Happy Easter. Belated Happy Easter. I'm going to talk about The Last Jedi today, the most recent release in the Star Wars universe. Came out in December theatrically. It's been out for a few weeks now on digital and just came out last week on Blu-ray. This is not going to be a review. I mean, I'm reviewing what happened in the movie. I'm going to tell you how it affected me. But I'm not going to rate the movie. I'm not going to rank it. The Star Wars movies have been around for decades. I saw them as a kid. It's absurd for me to try to figure out where The Last Jedi ranks among the entire series. People have done it. People have tried. People have debated it. That's fine. That's admirable. If you think that you can figure out where this movie belongs in your pantheon of Star Wars movies, more power to you. But that's just not for me. Anytime a new Star Wars movie gets released, people immediately want to rank it. And I'm simply not ready to do that. For me, there's the original trilogy, the prequels, and the new Star Wars canon. If I were to rank those three aspects of Star Wars, the original trilogy always goes first and always will. Then you have, for me, the new Star Wars movies, or the new Star Wars canon, sandwiched there in the middle, and then you have the prequels at the bottom. That's as close as I can give to a definitive ranking of where these movies fall for me. I do think that the original movies will never be matched. They are perfect for their time. I don't have too many arguments with them, other than, you know, if you get into the special edition things and and debate some of the changes. I prefer the original, original, original movies, the ones that I grew up with. Although, as I said in a previous podcast, I admire what the special edition movies did for Star Wars as a whole. In the 90s, early 90s, there really wasn't much going on in the Star Wars scene. It had been gone, it had been dead, the toy line had gone away, it was hard to find a Star Wars t-shirt, really, even. The special editions, without a doubt, changed that. But the 1991 novel by Timothy Zahn, Heir to the Empire, and its follow-ups, Dark Force Rising and The Last Command, had a lot to do with the resurgence of Star Wars. After those books became bestsellers, then we saw new toys. We saw a reborn Lucasfilm Star Wars fan club. We saw new comic books. We saw an attempt to release a movie without actually having a movie with Shadows of the Empire, which told a story via a novel, a comic book series, and a video game. There was even a sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it the art of Star Wars book, but they had a behind-the-scenes book for Shadows of the Empire talking about the toy line and the comics and how they put this whole multimedia launch together. It had a soundtrack, for goodness sake, and it was a good soundtrack as well. So the Zahn books brought Star Wars back into the public consciousness. It was this thing, oh yeah, I liked that as a kid. I'm glad to see it back, and it just grew from there. And the special editions really nailed it, because people who had never seen some of the Star Wars movies in the theater, got to go back and see them. And yeah, they had some changes, and in retrospect, they weren't great. But it's so exciting 
if you've never seen one of those movies before on a gigantic screen. And in the 90s, yes, you had big rear projection CRT TVs, but my family didn't have one. Our big TV was a 27-inch television. You know, there were not, the the 40-inch TV was not standard in the home. You really couldn't get a good theatrical experience at home. And then you finally could see the movies on the big screen. Now, I had seen Jedi probably in the re-release that they did for that in like 84, 85, somewhere in there, because I do remember going to see that movie. The other movies I had not seen, because uh, I was born in 1980, so in 77, I obviously wasn't around. My brother was one. Not even quite one yet when that came out. And then Empire Strikes Back was 1980. That was the year I was born. I was not even born when it came out. It was great to see those movies on the big screen. And then that paved the way for the prequels, which they have their place. I don't think they're as freakishly terrible as a lot of people say, but I have to acknowledge they they cannot touch the original trilogy. And I don't think they can touch the new movies that have been released in regard to Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and Rogue One. I just don't think the quality level of those movies really even matches from a storytelling and character perspective. People will say, well, you know, at least George Lucas tried to do something different. He tried to be ambitious with the movies, but it, they didn't work. They And I liked them at the time, but I was 18 when they came out, when the first one came out, and I was just so happy to have new Star Wars. As you go a little bit older and you look back on those movies where you look fondly on the original trilogy movies, even when you watch them and you know they've got some flaws in them, but they're great. Then you watch the prequels looking back and they just don't hold up very well. They went with so much CGI. It was cutting edge at the time. Cutting edge CGI in 1999 is not cutting edge CGI in this era. And they relied on it so much. It's not that you can't use CGI in some of those older movies and have it work. Because it does. Go look at The Abyss. Go look at Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Go look at Jurassic Park, for heaven's sake, which I just watched a couple of days ago. Now they used it sparingly. And you can't even really tell that they used computer graphics in those movies. Whereas, when you go back and you watch The Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith, there's just stuff in there that has just clearly been computer generated. That it just does not hold up, whereas a lot of the old effects, I would say the majority of the old effects in the original trilogy still look fine today. They may be a little quaint for some people, but man, they look good to me. I think the one effect, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, I think maybe the one effect that really sticks out at me that doesn't really hold up is the Rancor scene in... Return of the Jedi. You could definitely tell there was some stop motion and projection screen stuff going on there that just doesn't quite hold together as well as, you know, the space battle and all that stuff. But I mean, the Return of the Jedi space battle holds up with anything that you would release today. Really, it doesn't. And that's just models and camera work and ingenuity. So anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. But I cannot rank The Last Jedi on a list of Star Wars movies and tell you, well, it's better than this one, it's worse than this one. I just can't do that yet, because I haven't seen it enough times. I have seen, the I would I would say hundreds of times, probably. I was going to say dozens, but I have seen the other movies. It, it's got to be in the hundreds. I saw, like, Star Wars Special Edition in the theater, like, seven times. 
I've got all the ticket stubs in a scrapbook at home. And that's always my favorite movie to put on the background. If I'm trying to relax or I just would like to have something on and I don't want to have to think about it too much, a lot of times it's a Star Wars movie. So I have consumed a lot of that. And my brother and my parents can tell you that when I was a kid and we had the home video copies of Star Wars, I wore those things out. You know, I have watched them a lot. And because I've seen them so many times, it's hard for me to quantify The Last Jedi or really even The Force Awakens or Rogue One because I don't have that familiarity with them and that intimacy that I have with the original trilogy. So I, I won't be comfortable ranking The Last Jedi in a big list of Star Wars movies until the entire trilogy is complete and I know where it fits in the overall Star Wars narrative. Give it a few more years, let me see Episode 9, let me see Episode 8 a few more times, and I can tell you where I think it fits. Now, let me go back to when The Last Jedi released, which really hasn't been that long. It was December. I went with my wife, my brother-in-law, Tom, and our sister-in-law, Tiffany, who's Tom's wife. I was super excited. We all were. So we knew some things were going to happen, right? Luke's coming back. We're going to find out where Rey came from. We're going to learn what's going on with Snoke. Leia will get to take charge of the Resistance. And she did that in The Force Awakens, but we're going to see her play a more active role in this movie. We'll have some adventures with Finn, Poe, and BB-8, those great new characters. And we're going to see what's next in Kylo Ren's descent into darkness and madness. We knew all the stuff was going to happen. We had an idea of where it was all going to go. But as a wise Jedi Master once said, This is not going to go the way you think. The, the funny thing about this is, all of the things that we knew would happen in this movie did happen one way or another for the most part, but it didn't go the way that I, or I, I would say fairly, the general audience, expected. For example, Luke came back. He was a Jedi in exile, which I expected. I expected that he would be reluctant to train Rey, because that was going to be the arc that he was going to have to go on. You don't go to an island and hide away from the world because you want somebody to find you, and you want somebody to come to you and ask you to train them. That's not why you go and seclude yourself. But that said, I still did not anticipate the complete bitterness of Luke as a character, the way he fully resisted the call to be the hero. I thought he'd meet Rey, see how powerful she was in the Force, and see hope in her. That isn't what happened. None of that was true. He'd even cut himself off from the Force. I thought he'd feel Han Solo's death, and that, with Rey's arrival, would spur him into action. That That is not the way things went. I've written a few short stories in my time as an author. After The Force Awakens came out, I wrote a few short stories about some of the things that were on my mind after that movie happened. And there are just two, basically. One was the final scene there between Han Solo and Kylo Ren. It's from Han's perspective, and it's bouncing back and forth in his head as to what's going on and, you know, the progression from Ben Solo's birth to when he was a kid to when he was a teenager to when he went off to train with Luke. Another short story I had was just Luke... On the island, he felt Han in the Force die. It tore him up inside, and he had all these vignettes of him and Han and their interactions throughout the original trilogy movies. So I always thought that in The Force Awakens, Luke would feel 
that death of Han Solo. And that would spur him, as I said, into action. That'd bring him back. But Luke had cut himself off from the Force. He didn't know Han was dead. He didn't know it until Chewie threw the door aside. Chewie, what are you doing here? He said you're coming back with us. How did you find me? Long story, we'll tell you on the Falcon. Falcon. Wait. Where's on? That definitely was a surprise, the way that that shook out. Another thing that I was sure would happen in The Last Jedi. Rey will find out about her heritage, for better or worse, and it will inspire her to greatness. Maybe she's a Skywalker. Maybe she's a secret daughter, somehow, of Han and Leia. Other theories held she was related to Palpatine or Obi-Wan Kenobi. Maybe her lineage traces back to another Jedi. Rey comes... From nowhere. Where are you from? Nowhere. No one's from nowhere. Jakku. All right, that is pretty much nowhere. She's no one. Kylo Ren even tells it to her, right to her face. They're filthy junk traders who sold you off for drinking money. The dead in a pauper's grave in the Jakku desert. You have no place in this story. You come from nothing. You're nothing. Now, some fans think this is a misdirection. They don't believe Kylo, and that makes sense on a lot of levels, especially since the dark side will tell you anything to get you to join. However, Kylo says he knows who Rey's parents are because she knows deep down who her parents are. They're not important to the story. They're just important to Rey. And this really also goes back to something that Maz Kanata said in The Force Awakens. Dear child... I see your eyes. You already know the truth. Whomever you're waiting for on Jakku, they're never coming back. But there's someone who still could. Look, the belonging you seek is not behind you. It is ahead. Another thing I was sure that I'd seen in The Last Jedi, some indication of what hole Supreme Leader Snoke crawled out of. Didn't get that either. We learned nothing about Snoke, other than the fact that, like Ray's parents, he's not important to the overall story, other than as a tool for another character. He turned Ben Solo to the dark side, he provided the training, and he had the full resources of the First Order at his disposal. But like Ray's parents, Snoke himself is not important to the story, even though he thinks he is. And, and while he has this big fleet and an awesome command of the Force and the dark side and a great knowledge of that mystical energy that binds the galaxy together, he's not important to the story. He is simply a vessel for Kylo Ren to become what he needs to be. General Leia does indeed get the command experience that we expected, and a lot of this movie is her story. However, we had to resort to the tired trope of put the main character in a coma to drive the action and drive a wedge between characters who should otherwise be on the same side. Of the decisions in this movie, this is probably my least favorite because it's it's pretty trite. How many times have we seen the character goes into a coma storyline? I mean, it's a tried and true, 
I'll give you that, but man, for a writer in Ryan Johnson, who a lot of people regard as a really good writer, have to lean on a trope like that just to give us some drama in the Resistance fleet. Gonna say I didn't really dig that too much. Plus, I also sort of expected the guys from G.I. Joe to show up a little bit. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, G.I. Joe the movie came out in 1987. It was supposed to be a theatrical release. However, there was a little movie in 1986 that was released called Transformers the movie, and it was a box office disaster for Hasbro, who oversaw both brands. They got a lot of pushback from parents and a lot of crying children, myself and my brother included, when they killed Optimus Prime in Transformers the movie. So they were going to do a big theatrical release of this G.I. Joe animated movie as well. After the Transformers bombed and they got all this pushback from grieving kids and parents about what did you do to Optimus Prime, they changed G.I. Joe the movie to like a straight-to-video movie. It released, I think, also as a five-part miniseries, you know, just like The Weather Dominator and The Mass Device and Arise, Serpentor Arise and The Pyramid of Darkness. One of the big moments in that movie was supposed to be that Duke died. He was trying to be the mentor to his screw-up half-brother Falcon, and Serpentor was about to kill Falcon, and then Duke jumped in front and took a poisonous snake spear pretty much straight to the heart. I mean, you, you watch it, he's dead. That's a dead guy. That's a dead Duke. But after people complained so much about Transformers the movie, and those characters dying, and especially Optimus Prime, they rethought it. And suddenly Duke didn't get killed. He was just in a coma. He's gone into a coma, Duke. Falcon, don't worry. We'll do everything we can for Duke. Yo, Joe. And then at the end of the movie, they announced to us all that Duke's going to be just fine. Looks like we made it. Men, Doc says Duke's going to be A-okay. And when I saw The Last Jedi, and I know that Leia showed her force powers, but I just wish we could have done something more with her than put her in a coma for a good portion of the movie. Our, our time with this older generation of Star Wars characters is limited, and sadly, more so with Carrie Fisher, who ended up passing away. Of course, they had no idea that was going to happen while they were making this movie, but it makes that plot point sting maybe just a little bit more. Another thing I was sure I would see heroic adventures with Finn and Poe. Well, First of all, they split up for most of the movie. Second of all, their adventures were far from heroic. Finn stumbles into a plan to stop the First Order from tracking the Resistance fleet and goes off to Canto Bight with a character we'd never met before. Poe's so full of himself that he leads a mutiny, although, let us be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of reason for Vice Admiral Holdo to hold things back. Our buddy BB-8 becomes prequel R2. He has a million different talents. He can fix Poe's X-Wing steal a starship, knock out security guards, machine gun casino chips, and commandeer an ATST walker so everybody can make a dramatic escape from the First Order ship. It doesn't bother me so much that Finn and Poe didn't get to, like, team up and do stuff together. That's okay. I'm just saying, this is what I expected, and this is what I got. And what I got was a lot different 
from what I expected, and I think a lot of people coming into this movie discovered the same thing. And then there's Kylo Ren's descent into madness. It doesn't really happen. Again, not in the way that I expected. He's still brash. He's not in control of his emotions or his power, but he doesn't really go full-on evil. Not yet. There's still that bit of good in him that he was confident he'd eradicated when he killed his father, but there's also that sense of aimlessness. He's a child in a mask. He kills Snoke, he gets rebuffed by Rey, and he becomes the new supreme leader. He cannot control his rage. And when he sees the Millennium Falcon on crate, he loses it. Blow that piece of junk out of the sky! When he sees Luke on crate, he loses it. I want every gun we have to fire on that man. The resistance is dead. The war is over. And when I kill you, I will have killed the last Jedi. I'll destroy her and you and all of it. No. Strike me down in anger and I'll always be with you. Just like your father. He cannot control any aspect of his personality. By the end of this movie, he hasn't grown up. But I think Ray's decision to shut him out at the end and cut him off from their force connection will take care of that. He'll always be impulsive, he'll always be quick to anger, but I think he'll have some semblance of control in the next movie. One thing that upset a lot of people, and there have been numerous commentaries on this movie, but a lot of people were upset that the mysteries and some of the narrative threads that were set up in Episode Seven were abandoned. But they were not abandoned. They were subverted, and those are two very different things. They didn't meet fans' expectations after two years of speculation. Who were Ray's parents? Who's Snoke? Luke's going to come back, wield the green lightsaber, do a bunch of somersaults, and show he's the most powerful Jedi ever. And it's not perfect. I, I do think that there is a tonal dissonance in some of the things that happened in The Force Awakens with things as they happened in The Last Jedi. And I think the scene where Luke throws the lightsaber over his shoulder, which got a laugh in the theater every time I saw the movie, but it was more of a gasp of surprise, and some people generally thought it was funny, or meant to be funny. At the end of The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams sets up this epic shot. The whole movie is about finding Luke Skywalker. And Rey goes on this journey, she meets new friends, she discovers these incredible powers that she has, and she meets the legendary Luke Skywalker. Music swells, you don't know what Mark Hamill's thinking or what Luke Skywalker's thinking when he's looking at that lightsaber that belonged to him, that belonged to his father. You're expecting an epic moment. Instead, what you got was Luke taking the lightsaber and chucking it over his shoulder. A lot of people didn't expect that. They expected something that was going to treat that weapon of a Jedi with a little more reverence. But hey, that's what two years of speculating will give you. I can't imagine growing up in the 70s and 80s, being a little bit older, having to wait three years in between movies. And you didn't have the internet, you didn't have Twitter, no message boards, you couldn't blog about things, you couldn't podcast. All you had as a kid was 
playground speculation. On the plus side, I guess people couldn't blast your social media feed with the series' biggest spoiler from 1980. Alright, so I, I talked about some of the things that The Last Jedi subverted, how my expectations pretty much got thrown out the window. I'd like to address a few things that I really liked about the movie, because overall... I know I've, I've harped on some things here, but I'm just pointing out some general thoughts that I think a lot of people who are Star Wars fans feel about this movie, but I just wanted to point out that your expectations really were subverted, and there's no question, I think, that it's a divisive movie. Some people love it, some people hate it with the passion of a thousand fiery suns, because they felt it, it didn't give you the payoff of these things set up in The Force Awakens, and we didn't get to see Luke Skywalker be the Jedi Master that we always wanted to see, and I, I can understand where those fans are coming from. And there's also the bottom line on the movie as far as the box office goes, it was never going to live up to The Force Awakens. There's just no way. The Force Awakens was 30 years in the making, seeing the big three back in the movie together, trying to figure out Luke, who wasn't in any of the marketing, where he was going to fit in. So that, that movie had a lot of baggage, I think is probably the, the proper word, but it had a lot of anticipation that kept people going back. And again, Star Wars was fun, because people were burnt out by those prequels when Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005. I think people had had probably enough of Star Wars for a while. And when they heard that Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill were going to be coming back and we get to see Chewie and R2 and 3PO back on the screen together, people were really excited about that. And so that's why The Force Awakens made so much money. It had that anticipation. The Last Jedi also had a lot of anticipation, but I don't think it was able to live up to that because it was polarizing and there were a lot of people who walked away from that movie and maybe didn't go see it multiple times because they couldn't deal with some of the themes and some of the plot points of that movie and the way certain characters were portrayed. They didn't go see it again. I mean, just anecdotally, I saw The Force Awakens seven times in the theater and I saw Rogue One six times. And I saw each of the prequel movies three, four, five times times probably. The Last Jedi in the theater I only went to see three times. Part of it is two and a half hour movie. Part of it is scheduling. We just couldn't quite I, my, I wanted to take my wife to go see it again and we didn't get a chance to do that. I wanted to see it with my father-in-law. We didn't get a chance to see that either. So those were like another, at least one more time, maybe two if we went separately that I would have seen The Last Jedi. But that just tells you I didn't go see it as many times as the other movies. Anecdotally, that tells you a little bit something about maybe how I felt. But now I've had a chance to see it a few more times. I've seen it twice now at home. Just had my second viewing over the Easter weekend with my father-in-law, who had not seen it yet. We just never quite got our schedules aligned to go and see it. That's one of the reasons that The Last Jedi fell a little bit under, well, $200 million under Disney's projection of what that movie was going to make. But it still made more than a billion dollars at the box office. And yes, you can get greedy, and you want more, and you would like to see it up there. But there was no way... The Last Jedi was going to meet the same expectations and the same box office of The Force Awakens. With that out of the way, let me talk about some of the things that I really liked, or even loved, about The Last Jedi. Luke Skywalker. I had convinced myself since I was a kid that if they ever did more Star Wars movies, that Luke Skywalker would be the most powerful Jedi Master ever. He was going to throw at walkers around with his hands, he was going to pull... Star Destroyers down from the sky, ignite his green lightsaber, and absolutely chop suey the entire First Order. But hey, Mark Hamill's in his 60s. Luke's not that guy anymore. 
and what he accomplished in this movie far outweighed the spectacle of seeing ridiculously overpowered Jedi Master Luke Skywalker kill a bunch of things with his mind. What happened was satisfying and poignant for both the character and for the actor. And he really loves milk. We do know that about Luke Skywalker that comes from his time on Tatooine, I believe. I liked Ray and Kylo Ryan Johnson had described them as co-protagonists in this movie. And really, they, they were. They had such a strong connection. Was it two people who felt alone, who finally found someone kind of like them? Was there a hint of romance, whether you prefer Raylo or Kylo Ray? Were they two opposing forces on a collision course? There are a lot of different ways to read Kylo and Rey and how they interact in this movie. But what it's clear is that they care about each other. Maybe it's a little platonic on one side and not so platonic on the other. But they do care about each other. It's very clear. Rey sees something of herself in Kylo. Kylo sees something of himself in Rey or something that he could be in Ray, and they, they go into that throne room battle, each expecting the other to join them, and then realizing in pretty heartbreaking fashion, really, that they are just two people on a separate path. Kylo's darkness and rage and bitterness are things that he just cannot conquer, and those are things that Ray just will not give in to. She sees that spark of hope in him. She wants to cultivate it, but it's not there. ESB plus ROTJ equals TLJ. A little math there with letters. What I'm saying is the throne room scene, the cave, Ray rushing off to save Ben. That sequence was this mashup of the best parts of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. The throne room sequence in particular echoed Jedi. <laughs> Young fool. It was I who breached your minds. I stoked Ren's conflicted soul. I knew he was not strong enough to hide it from you. And you were not wise enough to resist the bait. It was I who allowed the Alliance to know the location of the shield generator. It is quite safe from your pitiful little band. An entire legion of my best troops awaits them. You underestimate Skywalker. And Ben Solo. And me. It will be your downfall. Your overconfidence is your weakness. Your faith in your friends is yours. Snoke's goal, however, was quite a bit different from the Emperor's. He wanted to kill Rey, or have Kylo kill Rey, while the Emperor wanted to turn Luke to the dark side as an ally. Rey wanted to save the Resistance and bring Kylo into the light, just as Luke wanted to save the Rebellion and redeem his father. And Kylo, like Vader before him, killed his master. Only instead of embracing the lights, he wanted to burn everything down. It's time to let old things die. Snoke, Skywalker, the Sith, the Jedi, the Rebels, let it all die. And he definitely tried the Vader strategy. Join me. Together, we can rule the galaxy as father and son. Come with me. It is the only way. Ray, I want you to join me. 
We can rule together and bring a new order to the galaxy. The throne room battle to me was the movie's second best set piece. I might get some arguments for that. My favorite's coming up here and I'll talk about it in a second. Yoda. From a story perspective, this rocked. And it was Puppet Yoda. He started out as the mischievous version of the Jedi Master. <laughs> before imparting his knowledge to Luke. Luke. We have what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. And such a great scene. Completely in character with Luke and Yoda from Empire. This one, a long time have I watched. All his life as he looked away to the future, to the horizon, never his mind on where he was, hmm? what he was doing. Hmm. Adventure. <laughs> Excitement. <laughs> A Jedi craves not these things. Skywalker. Still looking to the horizon. Never here. Not. Hmm? The need in front of your nose. And my last bit that I'm going to talk about that, that's my favorite, one of my favorite things that I liked or loved about the movie was The Last Jedi. I tear up every time Luke comes back at the end and talks to Leia. I even get a little misty-eyed at the cheap move that R2 pulls that convinces Luke to give Rey her lessons. R2? R2. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, hey, sacred island, watch the language. Old friend. I wish I could make you understand. But I'm not coming back. Nothing can make me change my mind. Years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you. That was a cheap move. That final scene between Luke and Leia is so well done. Those two actors put years of Star Wars lore on their shoulders, and they absolutely nailed it. They didn't waste any words. You could just feel the emotion between those two actors and between those two characters. I'm just glad you're here. At the end. I came to face him, Leia. And I can't save him. I held out hope for so long, but... I know my son's gone. No one's ever really gone. I've also heard a common complaint that Luke's a little too cocky at this point of the movie. Such as when he winks at 3PO, or when he dusts himself off after all the walkers open fire on him. If you think about Luke's character in Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, other than Star Wars where he's this wide-eyed kid, once he comes into his own a little bit, Luke's got a little bit of an attitude. You have learned much, young one. I'm full of surprises. Jabba, this is your last chance. Free us or die. <laughs> You're gravely mistaken. You won't convert me as you did my father. Soon I'll be dead. And you with me. I'll never turn to the dark side. You failed, Your Highness. 
I am a Jedi. Like my father before me. So what I'm saying is, that same confidence, that hint of attitude, has always been there with this character. There's nothing out of character for that. And I, I think people always imagine Luke Skywalker, Jedi Master at peace, incredible Force user, and has come to his Zen place with the universe. That's not really where this character went. The Luke that we see in The Last Jedi, he's a little bit broken, for sure, but he's not that far off from the Luke that we saw in the original movies. The Force projection is phenomenal. I'd love to say that I caught it the first time, but I, I didn't put it together. Now, I caught the separate parts that provide the tip-off for this. The blue lightsaber that shouldn't be there, the younger look, the lack of leaving a red streak with his footprints, really well-executed stuff, but I kind of dismissed those things, and, and I didn't put it together. I see that there is something up, and the pieces are there, but I couldn't put the puzzle together until they showed Luke on the island and he's on the meditation rock. And then you're like, wow. And it's a sad moment, you know, when you realize what it took for Luke to do that. And I love the callback and the musical cue with Binary Sunset from the original Star Wars movie. One thing I have wondered about that scene a little bit is why he didn't have the green lightsaber. Since the point of that projection was to make Kylo Ren lose it, mission accomplished, and the green lightsaber was the one that Luke had in the flashbacks. I'm going to chalk that up to artistic merit on the part of the filmmaker. One way to tip you off that there is something wrong with this scene. And then my wife brought up a good point. There's that point in The Force Awakens where he says this. That lightsaber... It belongs to me. And so the Anakin Skywalker lightsaber, once he's found out that that exists, he wants it. That is something that he craves. He feels he's entitled to it, that it does indeed belong to him. So by using that lightsaber, that's another way of looking at it as to a reason for Luke to have that one as opposed to the green lightsaber. But I, I'm going to chalk it up more to a third clue that Ryan Johnson was trying to give the audience as to what's going on here with Luke at the end. And since that lightsaber is something that Ben wanted, it also shows he's a gigantic hypocrite because he talks about burning stuff down, getting rid of all these institutions, and then he has this very famous line. Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. He thought by killing his father that he could kill his past, but he's still too attached to his anger for Luke and how things worked out between the two of them. Let's talk about a few things that I didn't love. And again, overall, I really like this movie. I do, and I'm not just saying that to try to convince you or to convince myself. I think a few more viewings of it helps, especially when you can go into it with a mindset that you already know that your expectations have been subverted. It's not so jarring. But that does not mean it's perfect. It's got some things that... I don't necessarily like. And this is an easy one, the Canto Bite sequence. I know why it's there. I understand the basic bones of storytelling. And I understand where that fits for Finn and Rose. But tonally, it just feels so different from the rest of this movie. Because your eyes are drawn to the screen, glued to it, when Luke and Rey are on the screen, or Leia's on the screen, or Rey and Kylo are on the screen. And then when you're on Canto Bite, you're just kind of 
passing time waiting for the stuff to get over. It's a side quest with side characters. I don't know that Ryan Johnson really knew what he wanted to do with Finn, so this is kind of what we got. Did you know that there's actually an extended horse escape scene on Blu-ray? You don't need that. It's just some of the things that they did, and it's the little moments that bugged me. Things like the opera singer hitting the high note while the, the fathers are going by. The, the kid giving a woo when the, the horses are running by. The drunken gambler giggling over the casino chips. It just felt like things that were kind of childish that were put into that sequence that really didn't belong in the rest of the film. And I thought those things felt a little rote and undercut the seriousness of the movie. And it's not like Star Wars has never been funny or never been kid-friendly. I mean, Yoda's a crack-up when you meet him. There's a lot of funny stuff in The Empire Strikes Back. There's good humor in Star Wars, especially with Han Solo. And you've got stuff that's funny in Return of the Jedi and probably more humor in Return of the Jedi than the others because of the Ewoks and it's probably a little more kid-friendly, but it doesn't quite feel as forced as some of the little moments on Canto Bite do. Also not a big fan of what I've been calling Texas Holdo. On subsequent viewings, I think Holdo gets better for me. Maybe it's just, you know, the acceptance that there's nothing you can do to change it. But I do wish that they'd mapped out this trilogy a little bit more in advance. Maybe given Holdo a small part in The Force Awakens to set her up a little bit. I didn't feel a whole lot of weight with her friendship with Leia. just kind of feels like she just sort of shows up. For people who didn't read the book Leia, Princess of Alderaan, I'm not sure Holdo worked all that well. Because we've never heard of her. She's not mentioned, I don't think, until Leia goes into the comb. And I could be wrong with that. Maybe there's a mention of her somewhere else in the movie before then. But she just kind of emerges as, oh yeah, she's the natural choice to lead the fleet. Who is this again? And that's kind of just a general criticism of the new trilogy in general some of the things that you kind of understand or hear. If you're going to helm a trilogy, then you map out your A, your B, and your C. You don't have to stick to everything that you map out, but you've got to have a general idea of where your story is going to start and where it's going to go and how it's going to wrap up. Feels like Disney is okay with this approach of, we'll give J.J. Abrams this movie, then we're going to hire Ryan Johnson. He can write his movie, but it doesn't necessarily have to have a lot to do with The Force Awakens. He'll connect some story points, kind of. Just doesn't quite feel tonally consistent, the two movies. I, I will definitely agree with that because The Force Awakens is a fun romp, the Last Jedi is a headier movie. It's a little slower. I don't think it's as dark as people were expecting. I mean, okay, yeah, Luke dies, Leia's in a coma, Snoke dies, and the Resistance is worn down to just the bare minimum of people. But it's really more of a hopeful movie than anything, despite all the bad stuff that happens. And bad things do happen. I mean, you think Poe's this swashbuckling, dashing guy, and his plan completely backfires. You think that Finn and Rose and their rogue DJ are going to be able to stop the First Order from tracking the Resistance fleet. That expectation, again, I hate to use the word subverted, but the, the, guy, the, the good guys fail at their mission. Just as the good guys failed in The Empire Strikes Back. There's not a lot of happy things that happen there either. And as the middle part of the trilogy, you know, The Last Jedi is going to be a little bit different in tone. You're going to want to challenge the characters now that you've established who they are. So be interesting to see what we get out of Episode 9, how it's going to feel tone-wise. Then there's Broom Boy. 
Now listen, I don't hate Broom Boy on his own because I understand what he means, what he represents. Ray's parents are nobodies, and she is a hugely powerful Force user. And if she comes from nowhere and can be a Jedi and can use the Force and understand it, then anybody can be a Jedi and use the Force and understand it. They can rise above their circumstances. And that's a fine message. But I also like some of my Star Wars traditions. And our Star Wars movies tend to end on a pretty cool composed shot at the end of the movie, and then you roll the the closing theme and the credits. Star Wars, it's the throne room sequence with the medals. And in Empire Strikes Back, it's Luke and Leia and the droids looking as the Millennium Falcon goes off. In Return of the Jedi, it's everybody sitting together and celebrating this victory over the Empire. Even in The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, we get these little snapshots that settle the story down a little bit, distill it, and then go to credits. And there was a perfect sequence aboard the Millennium Falcon, a perfect shot of everybody who's left together, and that's when they should have rolled the end credits. But instead, we cut away to that shot, and we get these kids, and they're talking about the Legend of Luke Skywalker, and then the kid goes and he pulls the broom over with the Force and looks longingly at the sky. And I get it. I understand why it's there. But they, they, they maybe could have cut that a little bit differently to keep some consistency with what we've seen before. I mean, really, The Force Awakens does break from the tradition a little bit in that it's not a static shot. It's that helicopter shot of Ray and Luke standing next to each other. It's still kind of an iconic shot. We don't really get that out of The Last Jedi, and that's a minor complaint. The point of the movie and the point of the Ray character and the point of her parents not being anyone, but Ray still being someone important. And Broom Boy hits home the fact that even if you're like a stable boy of humble origins that you could be Force-sensitive, and just because you tend to these noble creatures doesn't mean that has to be your life forever, and that the Resistance is not dead, that it will continue. I understand those things, so I'm speaking from a little bit of a point of selfishness here. The last thing I'll mention, it really has little to do with The Last Jedi itself, but, you know, it, it does kind of stink, because we've now said goodbye to Luke Han and Leia. It was well done, but having to say goodbye to Luke was such a gut punch, especially knowing what we know about Carrie Fisher. We'd already said goodbye to Han. Luke got a great ending. When you think back to the way this new trilogy was structured, the decision to leave Luke out of The Force Awakens pretty much entirely, and he was the MacGuffin of that movie, meant that we never got to see the big three together one last time, and we'll never see it. We wouldn't have seen it anyway in episode 9. Now that Carrie Fisher's dead, we know that we won't see it. There's a crushing finality to Luke's death, because what do you do with Princess Leia? Do you finish her story arc out in episode 9 with a different actress? I just don't think fans are going to accept that. And Leia's a great character, but Leia's also Carrie Fisher, and I think a lot of fans feel that way. There are some people who say, recast her, find somebody great, and people won't care. If you feel that way, that's fine. I think also when you're dealing with Star Wars, and this is an iconic character, this isn't like recasting Rick O'Connell's wife in the third Mummy movie. This is Carrie Fisher. This is Princess Leia. This is one of the biggest characters ever on screen. Try to have somebody play her. I don't know if that would work. On the other hand, the opposing argument to that is Princess Leia deserves to go out and have her storyline completed and not be killed off screen. Because really, the only thing that really makes sense to me would be for episode 9 to start with a time jump. You go ahead a few years, and you establish the fact that, you know, 
Princess Leia, General Leia, has died, and characters have to come to terms with that. It, it's tough. And maybe we'll see Luke back. If he can force project himself across the galaxy, certainly he can be a force ghost. See you, brown kid. I suppose with Leia, you could also make mention that she's still out there, but she's managing the resistance from somewhere else, or has to be held in seclusion or something like that to protect her, and we don't really see her, but we know that she's out there, but I, I just don't think that works very well either. And that'll wrap up this week's edition of the Matt Adams Podcast. My thoughts on The Last Jedi, but I've got some bonus content for you this week. After this episode, my wife, Anne, and I recorded a special episode where we have a full discussion about our thoughts on the movie, so be sure to listen to that. 